Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. If you have your copies of the scriptures, I would invite you to turn with me to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 27 this morning, verses 1 through 19. What great news for us that we can come to praise the Lord and praise Him for His excellent greatness. We serve a living and true God who is great. There is no one greater. There is no one who is more awesome than our God. There is no one who can hold a candle to our God. And so we are amazed by Him this morning. Amazed by who He is and by what He's done. Amazed because He has done more than we could ever ask or think. And he can do more than we could ever ask or think, and so we believe that he will do more than we could ever ask or think. What do you expect the Lord to do today? Sometimes I'm afraid we don't expect much so we won't be disappointed. Our God never disappoints. And so, may our expectations raise to the level of His excellent greatness (laughs) because He can and will do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or ever think or ever even imagine. (laughs) Let us come this morning expecting God to do great things. With that being said, would you stand with me as I read Exodus 27, 1 through 19. You shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits You shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes, and shovels, and basins, and forks, and fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners, and you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. You shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. 
and the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards as it has been shown you on the mountain. So shall it be made. You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side, the court shall have hangings of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits long on one, for one side. Its twenty pillars and their twenty bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise, for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long, its pillars twenty, and their bases twenty of bronze, but the hooks and the pillars and their fillets shall be for silver." And for the breadth of the court, on the west side, there shall be hangings for fifty cubits, with ten pillars and ten bases. The breadth of the court, on the front of, to the east, shall be fifty cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be fifteen cubits, with three pillars and three bases. On the other side, the hangings shall be fifteen cubits, with their three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen... Twenty cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, the breadth fifty, and the height five cubits with hangings of fine twine linen and bases of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use and all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Father, incline our hearts to your testimonies. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things out of your law. Unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> We've been making our way through the book of Exodus. This morning we come to chapter 27, which might seem a little odd. Why? We're going to talk about these things. We believe the Bible is inspired by God, breathed out by God, inerrant, infallible, the holy word. And so even these words, although on the surface, on the face of it, it might not seem like they have much to do with us, but they teach us great truths. that will penetrate into our hearts, I believe, this morning. How many of your worries and how many of my worries are irrational? They're not based on reason. They're imaginary. They're made up. In fact, maybe oftentimes you think of the worst case scenario. And how many of us then tend to worry about those worst-case scenarios? We never worry about the best-case scenario. It's always the worst. When I was a child, 
I worried that I would lose my eyesight, that I would become blind. I had no reason to think that I would lose my eyesight. But nevertheless, in order to prepare myself for the blindness that might strike me at any moment, I would practice by closing my eyes and try to feel my way and make my way around my house. Could I make it from my room to the bathroom? Could I make it from my room to the kitchen? Could I find the fridge? Could I find my clothes? Could I find my toothbrush? All of the necessities. Such an exercise caused me to bang my shins into furniture, run into the corners of walls, and stub my toes on doors. The test was really a test of how familiar I was with the house. Could I make it in the place where I lived every single day? Could I make it? Could I continue to live there if I couldn't see? How familiar are you with your house or your dwelling place? Could you make it around if you couldn't see anything? But a better question for us this morning, a more important question is this. How familiar are you with God's dwelling place? Do you know it? Could you make your way around it if you can't see it? Being familiar with the place where you reside is mostly functional. Can I get around and get to the things that I need to get to? Can I still function in this place? But when it comes to being familiar with the dwelling place of God, it is much more than a matter of function for us. Being familiar with God's dwelling place or being familiar with the tabernacle or later the temple is not important so that we can pass a test before we get into heaven. God's dwelling place is about so much more than being functional. Being familiar with God's dwelling place, being familiar with the tabernacle that he commanded the Israelites to construct in the wilderness is not so that we can have a not so we can have more bible knowledge. Being familiar with God's dwelling place is so that we are familiar with God. It's about knowing him. It's about living in relationship with him. It's about learning who he is and at the same time learning who we are. So what do we say as we read these verses this morning? I want to know the tabernacle because I want to know God. And would we say with the psalmists in Psalm 84, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. Keep your finger in, in uh, Exodus 27, but Psalm 84. Psalm 84, 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. 
Can we, can you say those words as emphatically as the psalmist says and sing those words? How lovely is your dwelling place. Do you see the Lord's dwelling place as lovely? There is no other place where I want to be. Where do you go to find this dwelling place today? I mean, the psalmists, well, there was the tabernacle, and then there was the temple, but there's no more tabernacle, there's no more temple. Where is the dwelling place of God? Well, as we've been seeing, first, it's in the person of Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God dwelt among us. Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. But now as we make our way through the Bible, we also read that we, the people of God, are the dwelling place of God, as those indwelt by His Spirit, as those bound together by Jesus Christ. We are being built into a spiritual house. We are being built into a place by the Spirit where God's presence resides. And so, (laughs) now, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Why do we see the loveliness of the dwelling place? Because first, we see the loveliness of Jesus Christ and who He is. And second, we see the loveliness of the dwelling place of God in the gathering of the people of God. So is this what you say when you see your brother and sister? When we come together this morning, that we would look at one another and we would say, how lovely is the Lord's dwelling place because we see it when we gather together. (laughs) Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. And look at what it says. Verse 2. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. Hold on, psalmist. Just let's back up a second here. Isn't that a little much? I mean, like, let's not get too extreme, right? Yeah, I I like going to church. Yeah, I like being with other people there. Yeah, but I long for it. I faint for it. Let's pump the brakes a little bit, psalmists. Come on. The idea here is my soul longs, yes, is even spent. I've spent my whole soul because I want to be with God's people so bad. I long for it so much. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you, O Lord. And the same idea here. I long, yes, I faint for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. And so, no, it's not too extreme. Let's say we're all in with this. My soul longs, yes, faints, to be in the dwelling place of God. How familiar are we with this God? But even more important, is your familiarity with God accurate? 
Is it based on truth? Or is it based on who you would like God to be? We began studying the tabernacle in the inner sanctuary in the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant, the very heartbeat of Yahweh. And then we began to move out to the next room, the holy place. There's the table of the bread of the presence. There's the seven-branched lampstand. We moved even further out to the tent structure, the inner layers, the outer layers of the tent, the golden frames overlaid with gold. And now we move even further out. We've left the tent structure, but we have not left the compound of the tabernacle. And we are going to focus on two other components today. Two components that I believe we need to take together so that we gain a better understanding of who God is and so we know God's plan of redemption. So what do these two components teach us? Number one, you can follow along in your outline if that's helpful this morning, there on your bulletin. Number one, the bronze altar tells us of the sacrifice needed to atone for sin. <clears throat> the bronze altar tells us of the sacrifice needed to atone for sin. This is the very first thing that you would encounter as you entered into the tabernacle, the bronze altar. It's there at the gate of the tabernacle. You can't miss it, and you can't miss it for a reason. Here stands an altar made of acacia wood overlaid with bronze. We see that the precious metals used in the tent were mostly gold and some silver, but now as we've moved further from the Holy of Holies, lesser precious metals are used. But this metal, the bronze metal, is a very strong metal. It's a metal that can endure much heat. It's a metal that is needed to overlay the altar because this is an altar that would be burning, perpetually burning. Altar is seven and a half feet wide, seven and a half feet long, a perfect square. You can see a rendering of that on your notes as well. It's four and a half feet tall. It's made with various utensils to assist the priests as they offer the sacrifices. So there's pots and shovels and basins and forks, fire pans, all needed to make a proper sacrifice before the Lord. There was a grating on top of this altar. I think of it as a big grill where the meat of the sacrifice would be placed. There was another bronze net halfway down, possibly to hold the wood or the coals that were burning. On the four corners of the altar were four rings into which wooden poles, again overlaid with bronze, would slide so the priests would be able to transport the altar to the next location of the tabernacle. It was a hollow square. The exact pattern had been shown to Moses there on the mountain, and this altar was to be fashioned after that pattern. The purpose of the altar was to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. In fact, Exodus 38.1 calls it the altar of burnt offering. So the people would come with their lambs and with their goats or bulls to make sacrifice before the Lord. And it was here, right here at the entrance of the tabernacle, right at the entrance, where the people were to enter into the presence of God. And what did this altar say to them? 
The only way that you are able to approach Yahweh, the only way that you are able to enter into his presence is by means of a bloody sacrifice. What a contrast that smacks the goers to the tabernacle every time that they would enter in. God is holy and man is sinful. That's the biggest problem, the most enduring problem, the most terrifying problem that we can face. And the only solution is sacrifice. Without sacrifice, one is excluded from God's presence and dwelling place. There is no other way in. There is no way around it. You want to come into the very presence of God, a sacrifice must be made. But why must a sacrifice be made? A sacrifice must be made because those coming into God's presence were sinners. And their sin separated them from God. So burnt offerings and peace offerings and sin offerings and guilt offerings were a reminder that what the people needed, what all sinners need, is atonement. All sinners need to be forgiven of their sin. All sinners need a sacrifice to be made in their place, a substitutionary sacrifice. All sinners need to be covered by the blood of the sacrifice so that they can be accepted by God. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. You can't be forgiven unless blood is shed. So our sin has alienated us from God. It has removed us from God and from the ability to be able to come into his presence. And so atonement is needed so that we can be reconciled to our creator God. A substitute has to die in my place so I can live. Sin is costly. But through these sacrifices, God shows his willingness to forgive people of their sins. Do we remember God's willingness? Or do we somehow think that God is forced and coerced into forgiving us? God forgives sins, but does he want to? Yes, he wants to. The altar at the entrance cries out, God is willing to forgive people of their sin so that they can approach him and come into his presence. Do you praise God for his willingness to forgive sins? Do you praise him? The fact that he wants to, he desires to forgive people of their sins. That he has made a way, he's made it possible to forgive you of your sins. I've skipped over one part of the altar. Do you notice what it was? On the four corners of the altar are four horns. Why horns? What do these represent? They represent the strength of the atonement. A strength that both satisfies the justice of God 
and pacifies the conscience of men. A weak atonement offers no security. It offers no assurance. A weak atonement makes us wonder, is it enough? Will we still die if we try to approach God? Will we still die if we come into his presence, into the holiness of this God? The altar says to us, no, this is a strong atonement. So, this is where you will run to find refuge. This is where you will run to find safety. This is where you will run to find the mercy of God, where he doesn't give you what you deserve, which is his wrath and judgment, but where he punishes a substitute in your place. Come to the altar to make your sacrifice. Come to the altar to see the willingness of God to forgive. Come to the altar to know God's desire to reconcile us to himself. Come to the altar. This place that is the focal point of all Israel's worship. Come to the altar to know the way of atonement. The way to be at one with God. The way to have peace with God. The way that we can have a relationship with this holy God when we are unclean, impure, and an undeserving sinner is through sacrifice. It is the shed blood of the sacrifice thrown on the sides of the altars and placed on the horns of the altars that speak to the strength of this atonement. It's purchased with nothing less than blood. Number two, the courtyard tells us of the love God has for sinners. The courtyard tells us of the love that God has for sinners. This next section of our text takes us to look at the curtain that is the barrier around the tent. It is of fine twined linen. It's supported by pillars and bases made out of bronze. And this area that's marked out around the tabernacle tent was 150 feet long by 75 feet wide. It was known as the court of the tabernacle or the courtyard of the tabernacle. It's the place where Israel would gather to worship the Lord. It was a place that was abuzz with sanctified activity where corporate worship was to take place. It was there that God accepted and delighted in the group of his people as they adored him and worshipped him. The primary way we come into God's presence as those covered by sacrifice and the blood of the sacrifice is so that we might worship him together as his people. And there's a dichotomy, a contrast here. While the tent, the tabernacle tent, has this idea of exclusion, now the courtyard has this picture of inclusion, inviting God's people to come near. The courtyard was made around the tabernacle so God's people did not inadvertently stumble into the presence of God. No, they were to come into his presence with deliberateness, with purpose and intention, with thoughtfulness and delight. You can't accidentally stumble into the presence of God. How is it when we come into God's presence here together? 
We can't come in inadvertently, stumble our way in to church. Does it come with thoughtfulness, with deliberateness, with purpose, with intention? Well, I didn't have anything better to do today, so I might as well go to church. No. And if for some reason you have inadvertently stumbled into God's presence today, we thank you that you're here. We're glad that you're here. You are here for a reason. You might think that you inadvertently stumbled into God's presence. Well, we don't believe in an inadvertent God or a God of accidents. accidents. We believe in a God of purpose. So if you think that you inadvertently are here today, we thank you that you are here and we believe God has brought you here. He's brought you here for a reason. He's brought you here to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. He's brought you here so that you might know him and worship him. He's brought you here so that you might hear about what we're talking about right now, his love for you. So let us not think that we can come to church accidentally. The entrance to the courtyard is designed in such a way to invite the Israelites into fellowship with God. And if we remember back for a moment to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve fell. They transgressed God's laws, and so God sent them out of the garden. What was happening? They were being disfellowshipped from God. They were being removed from His presence. They could not remain because of their sin. And we are given this picture at the end of Genesis 3. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So God has driven Adam and Eve out of the garden, out of the east end of the garden, and then he's put a guard there, the cherubim and a flaming sword, and says, you cannot come back, you cannot come back into the presence of God. Why? Because you're going to die if you try to. But now look at this beautiful picture here. The courtyard of the tabernacle. How do you enter into the tabernacle? What direction? It's the east, isn't it? The east side of the tabernacle. And remember the veil that was placed between the holy of holies and the holy place? It was a veil. And what was embroidered on that veil? cherubim. But now look at this other veil at the entrance of the tabernacle. A beautiful veil with blue and purple and scarlet yarn. Notice what's missing. There's no cherubim on this veil. Come in. Come in, my people. Come to me. God is inviting his people into his presence. God is saying, I want you to come to me. God is inviting his people to worship him. God is making a way back to gain a sense of having fellowship with him. No more disfellowship. Now fellowship in the presence of God with the living God. And why does God design this courtyard? And this courtyard is fairly big. Why does God design this courtyard this way? It is a picture of the love that God has for sinners. God has a big heart for sinners. The courtyard is as if God is opening his arms wide 
so that his people would experience his loving embrace for them. And how amazing that sinners could know the love of God, that they could know the love of his acceptance, that they could know the love of his nearness, that they could know the love of his forgiveness. This is the God who is love. And for the Israelites who dared to think that God could never love them, and for those here today who perhaps would think that God could never love them, the courtyard is a testimony to the greatness of God's love for sinners. How is it that God is able to love sinners like us? God does not love us by affirming our sin. He doesn't love us by condoning our sin. He doesn't love us by ignoring our sin. He doesn't love us by coddling our sin. He doesn't love us by downplaying our sin or by sweeping it under the rug. He doesn't tell us that despite our sin, we're really good people deep down. He doesn't love us by pretending that our sin doesn't exist. God loves sinners so much that he was willing to deal with their sin. He was willing to bear the curse of sin. He was willing to provide the way so that they could come into his presence and worship him in perfect fellowship and in perfect unity in a way that's even better than the tabernacle as now he's opened up a way through his own Son, Jesus Christ, so that we can know this fellowship and this intimacy and this relationship and this atonement with Him in a far better way. And so number three, this brings the two points together. This brings the two points together. God's love for sinners, as displayed through the sacrifice of His Son, is what animates the gospel. God's love for sinners as displayed through sacrifice, through the sacrifice of his son, is what animates the gospel. Do we use that word animate much? Think about like animation. It's in the sense of bringing to life. It's enlivening. It's invigorating. It's energizing. It's electrifying. It's the engine, if you will, of the gospel. As I looked at this point, God's love for sinners, as displayed through the sacrifice of his son, is what animates the gospel. As I wrote that, I thought, this seems pretty basic. It doesn't seem like this would be that controversial. But there is a problem. People have separated the love of God from the sacrifice of God's Son. People have tried to divorce God's love from the sacrifice and from the cross of Jesus. There are those who want God's love, but they don't believe they need the cross of Jesus. They want the love of God, but they do not want to see themselves as sinners. 
They want the love of God on their terms and according to their own definition of love, but no sacrifice, no cross. Here's the problem. No sacrifice, no cross. That means no love, no forgiveness, no gospel, no eternal life, no eternity spent dwelling with God forever. And so these two things cannot and must not and must never be divorced. You won't know the love of God unless you know the cross of Jesus Christ. And so where do we begin here? We begin at the altar. What is our altar? Look with me at Hebrews 13. If you have your Bibles, Hebrews 13. We might ask, what is the altar? Better yet, who is the altar? Hebrews 13.10 gives us a hint. Thirteen ten of Hebrews. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Jesus Christ now is our altar. He is the final and the true altar. He is the altar to which the altar in the tabernacle pointed. The Puritan John Owen says this, the altar which we now have is Christ alone and his sacrifice. For he was both priest, altar, and sacrifice all in himself. Jesus is the single sacrifice for sins made to perfect us, those who are being sacrificed. The priests in the tabernacle were offering sacrifices continually, repeatedly for the Israelites. And why was this happening? Think of yourself as an Israelite for a moment. You're going here to this tabernacle. You're seeing these sacrifices being made over and over and over again, repeated day after day. You're bringing sacrifices repeatedly. Mom, Dad, why are we doing this? Why do we have to go back again to the altar? Why do we have to make sacrifice again? Why does the blood have to be shed again? These sacrifices are repeated to show that the blood of bulls and goats was not sufficient to forgive people. There needed to be a better sacrifice. There needed to be better blood. There needed to be a single sacrifice with a lamb whose blood was completely perfect. And that was through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the single sacrifice for sins. And it eliminates the need for any other offering to be made to save us. His sacrifice is sufficient to forgive us our sins, to make full atonement, to pay the penalty of God's righteous judgment, to pacify the conscience, our guilty conscience. This is no weak atonement. The horns of the altar were but pointers to the strength of Christ's atonement for us. So we run to Him for refuge. We run to Him to find grace and mercy in our, in our time of need. 
We run to him who is the shelter during the storms of life. We run to him who is the sure and steady anchor of our souls. We run to him remembering we are no longer enslaved to sin but have been made alive to God. We run to him knowing that his forgiveness remains and can never be revoked. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. Christ's sacrifice is no weak sacrifice. It is no partial atonement. It is an atonement that he initiates and that he keeps going. It is final atonement. It is full atonement. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And yet, with the good news of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, where he would die on the cross to pay the redemption price in full, maybe we would be tempted to think that his sacrifice isn't that great. How would we do that? We could go to one side of the pendulum where there is a prideful person, one who does not think that they need forgiveness, that they're really not that bad, that their sin is not really that serious. Who would dare say, I do not need forgiveness? They are unwilling to see themselves as God sees them. They are unwilling to accept what he says about them. And while they might not say it, how many believe, I do not need forgiveness? If you don't need forgiveness, Christ died for no purpose. If you do not need forgiveness, you are still in darkness. If you do not need forgiveness, you are blinded by Satan. If you do not think that you need forgiveness, you are still dead in your sin. You want God's love, perhaps, but you've rejected His love because you reject the sacrifice of His only Son. Do not reject Him anymore. Do not reject His love. Come to Him. Come to Him, seeing that it's on the cross that Christ paid it all, paid the full atonement price for your sin so that you could be brought to Christ, be brought to God, so that you could have a relationship with Him. And see that what you need is faith in that Savior, faith in that sacrifice that He made for you, and repentance, turning from your sin. There's the other side of the pendulum. This is the one who thinks that their sin is too much. Their sin is exceedingly great. It is so abhorrent, awful, and utterly disgusting that they believe there is no way that Christ's sacrifice is strong enough to forgive them. They believe that Christ's sacrifice isn't sufficient. Maybe Christ could forgive some of your sin. Maybe he could forgive your sin in part, but to forgive all of your sin? You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've said. You don't know what I've thought. My sin is too great. It's too expensive. It's too massive for anyone to remove completely. My sin, oh the bliss 
of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Christ's sacrifice is strong enough to forgive all of your sin. It is strong enough to clear your conscience so that you can know I am fully accepted by God. There is no holding back. There is nothing keeping me from him. There is nothing keeping me from his love. All of my sin is forgiven in Christ. And if you've trusted Christ, all of your sin is forgiven in him as well. Your sin is not stronger than Christ. Christ shed his blood to wash away your sin, to cleanse you, to bring you into the loving embrace of God himself. What a love. What a cost. We stand forgiven completely and fully forgiven at the cross. God's love comes to us through the sacrifice of his son, and nothing can separate us from his love. Romans 8 35 through 39. Romans 8, 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, not even your sin, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how strong God's love is through His Son. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for sending Your Son to the cross. Thank You for sacrificing Your only Son. For us. Thank you for giving us love when we were unlovely and undeserving. Thank you for caring for us and making a way to bring us back to yourself through Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, how we need this love. A love that we cannot find in this world. A love that we cannot produce ourselves. Lord, if there is someone here this morning who is in desperate need of love, I pray that they will look to the cross of Jesus. I pray that they would find your love there. I pray that they would receive 
that gift of salvation. I pray that they would be embraced by your loving arms. I pray that you would call them out of darkness into your marvelous light. Father, if there's any time that we have thought our sin stronger than your love, forgive us. If there is ever any time that we've doubted the strength of Christ's atoning work, forgive us. Let us go with boldness into this world as those who have had your love poured into our hearts through the work of the Spirit to proclaim this love. Because it's this love that animates the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we as believers have known it, let us share it and tell it to others that they might hear the word of Christ and so be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What better way to respond to the sacrifice of Christ than to sing that it was finished upon that cross. So would you stand as we